We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens, and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple Podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Hi, Connor here from the Intelligence Squared podcast. Welcome to the Futureverse. In this series from Intelligence Squared and Ytree, we bring together ideas, conversations and insights around society's most pressing issues and how we can come up with innovative solutions. In this episode, the first in our series, Redefining Legacy, we're addressing one of the biggest decisions any parent of means has to make. How much, if any, of your wealth should you hand down to your children? Here's our host, Kamal Ahmed, with more. Welcome to this episode of The Futureverse, brought to you by Intelligence Squared and Whitetree. I'm Kamal Ahmed. Whitetree was founded in 2017 to give their clients insight and advice about their money and life. Whitetree calls this insight financial life intelligence. At the heart of this idea of financial life intelligence sits the vision of a world where wealth is defined by how you live, not what you have. That's where the Futureverse comes in. A space to explore the conversations, ideas and insights that are driving change and shaping our future. This week, we're introducing a new theme in the Futureverse, Redefining Legacy. Over the next three episodes, we'll be exploring what it means to leave a legacy in today's world. But today, we're getting right to the heart of one of the biggest decisions any parent with means has to make. Do you leave much or all of your money to your children? Or will you do them and society harm in doing so? Are we morally obliged to focus on the greater good, whatever that may mean, over and above our own offspring? Do these conflicting impulses have to be at odds? And 
should wealthy parents even be allowed to make this decision? Should it be outsourced to governments via a wealth tax? So our question today is, is the kindest thing a parent can do for their child and for their world to leave them nothing? I'm joined now by three guests to discuss this question. Professor Peter Singer is widely regarded as the most influential utilitarian philosopher of the 21st century. His 1972 essay, Famine, Affluence and Morality, in which he argued in favour of donating to the global poor, inspired a global movement, effective altruism. He is currently Professor of Bioethics at Princetown University and is the founder of The Life You Can Save, a non-profit that inspires and empowers people to take action in the fight against extreme poverty. Adrian Wildridge is the global business columnist of Bloomberg Opinion and former political editor at The Economist, as well as author of its Bayshot column. His latest book is The Aristocracy of Talent. How Meritocracy Made the Modern World. Julia Davis is an angel investor, a lawyer, philanthropist and environmental campaigner dedicating her time, skills and resources to tackling the climate and environmental crises and interconnected social issues we face. She's also a member of Patriotic Millionaires UK, campaigning for increased taxes on high-level wealth. Welcome Peter, Adrian and Julia to the podcast. So I'm going to start by asking you one question in turn. What is the kindest thing we can do for our children, leave all or very little of our inherited wealth to them? Peter, let's kick off with you. What's the answer? Okay, but first I have to say that to me, that's not the decisive question. Um, It's not what is best for your children only, but it is what is best for everybody. And of course, your children count as part of everybody. But uh, I wouldn't think we should determine this question just on the basis of children. If, if in fact, everybody in the world was comfortably off and there were no causes that you needed to donate to, then maybe it would be better to give a reasonably large amount to your children, for better for them. But um, in the world in which we live, I think that it's better to leave them enough to survive on. I don't think we should leave our children bereft, but um, I think there are so many other people in great need and there are other causes that need our support that we should leave a relatively modest amount to our children. Thanks so much, Peter. Julia, let me come to you. So, Peter, let's leave them, let's leave our children something, but um, not too much. Julia, are you in a similar type of space? Well, well, like Peter, I think that uh, we do need to think about the wider picture. And my view is that um, what is good for for my children is also what's good for the wider world, because, uh, you know, my sons are a part of the world um, and I want them to live in a secure world, a world uh, without greater conflict than we we already face, hopefully less conflict. Um, I want them to live in a world where they can enjoy the beauty of the natural world, as I have done. And so that means that for me, um, in in looking after my children's future, uh, it, it's really incumbent on me to use my my wealth and my resources right now to try to secure a better future for them. So it, I'm not really going to be helping them if all I do is I just build up more wealth to leave them after I pass away. I want the biggest thing that I can leave my children is a better world. I would like to leave them 
a safer world, uh, a more beautiful world in, in natural terms that, than that that I've enjoyed. Unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that for them. So for me, um, what I want to do is, is use as much of my wealth as possible to, to do what I can to securing a better world for, for my children, for other people's children, and, and not just for people, but for all life on Earth. Adrian, coming to you. I don't think it's necessarily the kindest thing to do, but nor do I think it's necessarily the most important question to be asking. I actually agree with Peter here. The most important question to be asking is what is good for society as a whole? And I think it's probably better for society as a whole that we have many points of life, many potential, many rich people who can uh, can act as uh, philanthropists than it is to have the state exercising a monopoly over what we do with the world's wealth. So I would say from... From the point of view of the world, um, the, the the good thing to do is for for, for, for wealthy parents to be able to deliver, deliver a significant proportion of their wealth uh, to their children. Now, I would not defend um, the current inheritance laws in the United States. I think the United States has gone too far in cutting inheritance tax. But I would say the inheritance tax that it stood in about the year 2000, or as it now stands in Britain, uh, would be a reasonable model for for a healthy society. Adrian, we're going to come on to the issue of uh, who decides, which is drifting into that wealth tax um, issue a little bit later in the podcast. But that's really great that we've we've started to raise that question now. Is your sense that it is for parents to decide about what wealth they leave? And how do you have those types of conversations as parents about what is the right thing to do? I must admit, I'm a parent of two young adults now, similar to you, Julia. And until engaging in these types of conversations, do you think, Adrian, that many parents actually think about this? Or is the default position, I leave my wealth to my children? I think the default position is that people want to leave their wealth to their children. I think human beings are sort of naturally nepotistic animals. They look after their, their children before they do uh, anything else. But I think that um, responsible people do engage in those sorts of conversations. And I think that's particularly true about the ultra wealthy. I think Bill Gates is not the only member of the ultra wealthy class who is worried about the the impact of you know huge fortunes on the character of their children you know and if you go back to, to, to the late 19th century teddy roosevelt was was brilliant on this subject he said the problem is that we're destroying the the characters of our uh, of our children by leaving them such enormous amounts of money and a lot of what he did when he was trying to introduce the the the, the you know the the first inheritance tax in the united states was he was concerned about the the moral um, nature of the American upper classes, and he worried that if they had too much money given to them, uh, they would become decadent. So his 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 wealth tax was a way of making them sort of stronger in a Darwinian sense. Thank you, Adrian. Julia, could I bring you back in? When you're considering around the wealth that your children may inherit, but I want to get this more broadly. It's not about your children, young men. It's not about your children, but when you're thinking about that as a parent and speaking to other parents, do you think, as Adrian is saying, um, that inheriting huge amounts of wealth is actually damaging for children? I know there's the broader issue that Peter has brought in around the bigger society is the more important question, but actually just for the children themselves of maybe high net worth individuals or parents who have been um, successful in their lives and their careers and their journeys in monetary terms. 
is it damaging to children to for them to simply inherit large amounts of money? Because presumably they could do with that wealth something that is good, as you describe it. Um, personally, I do think it's damaging. Uh, I don't want, um, whether whilst I'm still alive or, or after I pass away, I don't want uh, my children to, to have the responsibility or or indeed the um, feeling that they don't, responsibility of that wealth uh, in terms of taking the decisions on what they do with it. Because I think that's something that's uh, better comes to take those decisions when you've got a bit more maturity. And I also don't, I want them to have to make their own way in life. Uh, I also don't, I want them to be part of society. And in many ways, wealth gives you freedoms, but I think also it can take away freedom. You know, I'm someone I've never wanted to own uh, very expensive things because if I lose something, if I lose an earring, it really doesn't matter to me because I have taken a conscious choice. I don't want to own expensive jewellery. If, if my car gets scratched, it's oh, that's a shame, but it doesn't upset me. And I don't have to worry about where I park my car. I want the freedom to feel happy walking amongst other people. And I think that some people have so much wealth, they, they now fear other people. You know, they have lots of land and they spend a lot of time worrying about how they keep people off their land. Um, for me, I want to live in a a society which itself has wealth. And I want to live in a society which, where the, the differential between those that the haves and have, have nots is much less than, than where we are right now in society. Um, because I think that then everybody has greater freedom. Because, you know, a society where the, the differences in, um, in, in life experience it is as great as it is now that that's never going to be a a happy a, a society of great welfare or, or a stable society so yes i think about that it, it can be corrupting for for people generally anyone to have extreme wealth uh, and for that to be on a young person who hasn't you know take it had the life experience of, of accumulating that for themselves i don't think it's it's beneficial but i also think it's not good for society as a whole that, Julia, seems to get to the heart of the idea of financial life intelligence. It's about what you do, not what you have. And then how does that affect what you think you would like to pass on to your children? And let's we've touched on the monetary issue, wealth. What other things as parents do we pass on to our children? Well, I think that, you know, I, I, I will keep saying this. I think we're in a world that's facing multiple, multiple crises. I would like my children to live in a world where there are still hedgehogs, where there are still pangolins, where they could still go to, America, uh, to Africa and they could still see mountain gorillas. Um, now, they're very fortunate. I've already given my son some fantastic experiences. We, we, you know, we absolutely love the outdoors. We love wildlife. And we've, we've had the great fortune to, to visit you know, many places and see many, many things. Uh, but it's it's that's not enough, you know. I want uh, to 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 set a good example to 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 my boys and show them that I am not just enjoying these things. I'm doing my best um, with with the resources at my hands to to try to, to protect them. Adrian, how do you respond, Julia's notion that even if you have been successful, your high net worth, that you still, in consumption terms. Uh, travel more lightly. Now, Adrian, I don't know if you have any particularly beautiful earrings that you'd be worried about losing, but do high net worth individuals tend to want to put their money into cars they don't want to be scratched, into earrings they don't want to lose, into land and property and symbols of status? And actually, we need to reconsider 
what we think the prizes of success actually look like. I think there's a huge variety amongst high net worth individuals in terms of what they do with their money, what they consider to be a valuable thing to do with their money, just as there is amongst you know ordinary middle class people. Some ordinary middle class people value their cars enormously and you know shine them and keep them keep them beautiful, um, and others don't. I, I'm not sure it's highly correlated with 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 the amount of money that you've got, and also with 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 nature. I mean, I'm not sure that that stopping people from inheriting wealth will be good for the natural world or bad for the natural world. You can argue that that, that people who inherit a lot of money have been quite good as custodians for the natural world because they've had estates which they've inherited over many, many generations. They've tended to look after them, which would be, let's say, Edmund Burke's sort of approach to these things. They tend to be custodians of the natural world. But I'm not sure um, whether that's true or not, whether you can actually demonstrate that if we had the state essentially confiscating everybody's wealth in each generation, that would make for you know a better planet. And finally, I would say that I think when we think of the bigger issues of equality of opportunity um, and what sort of tenor society has, I think the most important way in which privileged people transmit their privileges to the coming generations, the most important way they do it is through cultural capital rather than through financial capital. So I think if you're advocating getting getting rid of concentrations of wealth you're infringing on people's liberty to do what they want with their with their money without necessarily doing the good things that you want to do which is to end war save nature and create a more equal society peter before i bring you in about philanthropy and what is the best place when you're thinking about philanthropy. Julian, I must bring you back in to be able to respond to Adrian's point. With regard to the suggestion that the wealthy are good custodians of land, I would very strongly have to differ with that. Um, It can be the case, and there are certainly wealthy people who have done great things for conservation. But equally, um, in the UK, we have uh, land, let alone wealth, we had land concentrated in the hands of a very few people. And they consider themselves to be good custodians of their land, but nature doesn't. Um, and unfortunately, nature has done very poorly on land which has been owned by very large wealthy landowners. So if you look, for example, at the um, examples of, of grouse moors or deer hunting estates, they are very, very barren landscapes. Um, nature has not thrived there at all. Julia, thanks so much. Peter, before we will come back to the wealth tax issue, it's coming up later in the podcast, do, um, of course, stick with us. Fascinating debate. But Peter, let me, let me, let's push us on a bit to the philanthropy question. Um, you have uh, lived a successful life um, in a world where you have managed to accumulate a degree of uh, wealth. Um, you've devoted a lot of your uh, career to... Uh, discussing, researching, understanding the philanthropic uh, world. Could you give us some ideas that maybe might guide decision-making around how philanthropy should or does best work for a better society? Uh, Thanks very much, yes. I think it's important that people think a lot more seriously about where they're going to donate their money, and I'm assuming that we're all agreeing, I think, that people should donate some of their money. Uh, We may vary as to how much that should be. But uh, I think it's very important that whatever it is that you've decided you're able and willing to donate, 
you should think hard about where it's going to do the most good. Because uh, unfortunately, most people don't do much research when they donate. Um, often it's impulsive. They've seen some publicity uh, that looks attractive to them. Uh, or some friend has said, I'm giving to this organization and they follow. Uh, but there's a huge difference in the effectiveness of different charities. And I'm not saying this um, comparing charities that are outright frauds. There are such charities, but they're actually very rare. And you know, you could give to any of the, the big well-known charities and you wouldn't be giving to a fraudulent charity. But um, in terms of how much good they do uh, with each pound or dollar that you donate, there is going to be a huge difference. And, and that will depend often on whether they are working um, within an affluent country or in a low-income country. Let, let me give you one uh, example of this. Uh, a lot of people will think that a charity that uh, trains guide dogs to help people who are blind is a good charity to give to. Of course, it's good that people who are blind should have a guide dog to help them get around. It makes their life a bit easier. But it's quite expensive to train a guide dog to help somebody who's blind, and, and you have to also train the person to work with the dog. And a roughly uh, estimate might be that it's going to cost, say, in the US, something like forty to $50,000 um, to train a guide dog. Now, um, in other countries, in low-income countries, there are people who are blind because they've developed cataracts. Uh, and they can't afford to get their cataracts removed and they don't live in a country with the National Health Service uh, like the UK where they would be able to get the cataracts removed uh, at no cost. But you can donate to charities that are working in those countries that um, I've seen estimates as low as $25 for uh, a cataract removal. Let's say that that's an exaggeration. Let's, let's say it's $100. Um, but still, even if it's uh, $100, you can see that you could restore sight in 400 people for the cost of training one guide dog for one person. And clearly to have your sight restored is even better than getting a guide dog. So at a minimum, the charity that is helping people to uh, get their cataracts removed is doing 400 times as much good as the charity that is training guide dogs. Um, so people need to think about that and they need to find the charities that are most effective in helping people. And Peter, if I can just ask for a very short answer to this, is it a moral obligation to give away your wealth? If you are a person who is middle class or above in an affluent society and you're spending money on things that you don't really need, they're not necessities, then I think given the inequality in the world and the extent of extreme poverty in the world that we're living in, it is a moral obligation to give something to people who, through no fault of their own, uh, battling with much greater needs than you have. Adrian, what's your response to the notion of moral obligation for people who have accumulated and have been successful in their life a degree of wealth? Yeah, I, I think there, there is indeed a moral obligation. And I think many, many people who have a reasonable amount of, uh, of, of wealth do feel that moral obligation. But I wanted to suggest two things. So I think we can all agree that um, that philanthropy is a good thing um, and that philanthropy is one of the justifications, as it were, for for you know, you know not having a hundred percent inheritance tax um, that that having 
people inheriting a certain amount of money that gives them a certain amount of uh, control over their resources can be justified by philanthropy. But I wanted to suggest two slightly more um, difficult cases um, in favour of you know people inheriting significant amounts of money. One is patronage of the arts that rich people, um, a significant number of them do spend money on art. Um, and that is good in general for civilization, particularly if it's not just grandmasters, but also encouraging current artists to produce their work. That's one way in which you 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 can um, improve the overall quality of civilization um, through patronage. I think that's always been the case throughout history that that people with money have acted as patrons to the arts, and that has created a, a, a better world. And the second is even more, as it were, controversial, and that is that um, rich people can often act as sort of innovative consumers. And that by innovative consumers, they can act as um, generators of innovations and popularizers of innovations that make the world ultimately a better place. Um, and I would say Tesla, for example, electric cars started off with rich people um, who had lots of money to spend, and um, if they, you know, they're now becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So many significant problem-solving technologies are brought to us courtesy of people who have money to spend. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Families have a lot going on. 
Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Adrian, you've just tossed in some very, very interesting ideas into this Redefining Legacy uh, podcast. Um, Julia, can I come to you? Um, Adrian has said, Wealth has helped us protect land. You've challenged that. Um, he's now saying that wealth has helped uh, in the flourishing or otherwise of art. And also wealth helps with the notion of innovative consumption. But I wanted to move us on a, a little bit, uh, but do touch on those if you'd like to respond to those areas, um, about this notion of the moral obligation, philanthropy, versus the notion of the actual wealth tax, which is uh, obviously a legally defined uh, way of uh, uh, giving away or taking away, as it's a tax, people's uh, wealth uh, once they die or, or during their lifetime. You've been looking at this and campaigning on this issue around wealth tax and how it should work, uh, particularly obviously, well, only obviously or in some senses in Western developed democracies. Julia, give us your sense around the wealth tax versus the notion of voluntary philanthropy using some of the guidelines that Peter, for example, has outlined. Can I just come back on um, innovative consumption and uh, give you, you some may, examples Julia, of, of course. innovative <laughs> consumption that aren't so good for the planet? So uh, space tourism. So as we know, uh, many of our our mega billionaires have been um, putting huge resources once again into space tourism. Once again, at a time where we have um, pensioners who are wondering, you know, whether or not they can put the heating on this winter. We have huge campaigns encouraging people to walk their children to school, people to use their cars less, to use the bus more. And we have these people uh, developing space tourism. So I would say that there's been some extremely harmful, innovative consumption that's been developed by the wealthy. To come back to wealth tax, um, again, you know, I, I think that um, people that work, they don't get to decide whether or not a, a, a significant amount of their income goes towards tax, goes towards society, goes towards all of the things that we need in society, to our NHS, to our state schools, to, you know, maintaining our roads. And when working people, most working people pay tax, that really does affect what they can then spend on nice things like holidays, like a new car, on clothes, on, you know, activities that their children can do. Now, when wealthy people, and by wealthy people, you know, I'm not talking about people who have just, you know, done okay and got, you know, a relatively nice house. Let's, let's just call, let's talk about really wealthy people, people who've got more than five million pounds in wealth or more than 10 million pounds in, in wealth. When they pay the kinds of levels of moderate wealth tax that which we've been proposing, that doesn't um, affect where they go on holiday, how many day holidays they have. It doesn't affect their, their grocery shopping. It doesn't affect what they spend on clothes. It just affects their accumulation of more wealth. And so um, we cannot rely on philanthropy. We absolutely can, cannot. So there are, some, there are many, many wealthy people in our country who continue to benefit from wealth that has been accumulated from some really horrendous 
activities in the past. And, and people will say, oh, you can't go backwards. You can't go back into history. But I would say, well, sometimes you can. And so I, I think that when you talk about wealth that people have, a lot of wealth that people have is land. And if you went back in history and saw how they got that land, well, you know, that's an interesting question. So for me, we cannot rely on philanthropy because if we could rely on philanthropy, we would live in a very uh, just and equal society. We would live in uh, a society where we are not massively depleting the natural world, where we do not have um, working people having to use food banks, where we do not have pensioners that um, will potentially, you know, they, they're potentially going to end up in hospital because they can't heat their homes properly. And then they probably won't be able to set, be sent home from hospital because they can't be sent home to a damp, drafty home. So that's why we absolutely have to have wealth tax. And I would argue that a wealth tax, ultimately, it benefits everyone because we all benefit from a better society, a society where we have public wealth and not just private wealth. Before I bring you back in, Peter, um, Adrian, I need to ask, I can't resist. Do you have a yacht? <laughs> I, I I don't have a yacht, and in, um, I hardly have a car. I must say, actually, but my car's not in a very good state at the moment. But I would say um, to Julia's points that the, the, you know the examples she gave um, really were about Bezos and Musk, you know, in space tourism, and they're both people who haven't inherited significant amounts of money. They're people who have made their money during their life. So we're sort of shifting the the subject of, of conversation from inheritance tax to wealth tax, which may be a reasonable thing to do, but it's not quite, it's, it's not necessarily an inheritance tax question. Thanks, Adrian. Uh, Peter, can I bring you in on this philanthropy versus tax? So voluntary versus order, <laughs> um, which is the way, how is the way to approach? And I think, Adrian, you make a very important point. We're talking about inheritance and wealth. What do you think, Peter, is the best way to approach how we ensure the good society and how people who have accumulated wealth through their life are able to take part in ensuring that future good society? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question and, and I do think it's a balance. And I was uh, interested in noticing that uh, Adrian did accept the idea of an inheritance tax which is not always accepted where I am in the United States, of course. Um, and there has been, I think, a, a downward slide in um, inheritance taxes. Uh, and I think that that's regrettable. I do think that states are not always the most efficient ways of distributing um, the revenue that they receive. And uh, in particular, you know, they tend to be rather cautious and uh, bureaucrats tend to avoid daring decisions because if something goes wrong, then they'll get into trouble. But if they just continue to do what they've been doing before, they're much less likely to get into trouble from the, the higher ups. Uh, and the same will be true to some extent to politicians. So I think it is important that um, there be people with significant assets who are able to choose to donate it um, and are able to choose to donate it in bolder and more daring ways uh, than you would get with a government. Um, and some of those will come unstuck, of course, but they're prepared to wear that. Um, and some of them will be pioneering steps that we will then follow. Um, so just to give one example, um, the charity Give Directly, which was set up by some people in Yale Business School, I think, primarily, um, started giving cash grants to people in extreme poverty in East Africa. 
Um, uh, whereas, uh, you know, governments were not giving cash and probably, you know, wouldn't have dared to give cash because they would have said, or the, or people would have said that the media would have said, you're giving away our money and people are just going to use it for drink or gambling or prostitution or whatever else it might be. Uh, but in fact, Give Directly carefully followed where the money was being spent. Um, and that was not the case. Um, not that none of it went for any of those activities, but um, wasn't a, a significant part of it at all. People tended to use it wisely. And it was really trusting people to make their decisions as to what they needed most and could spend the money on. I think, Peter, you make a really interesting point that obviously for the individuals that have accumulated wealth, if they live in um, a system where there isn't inheritance tax, and as you say, in America, there's been um, a, a downward pressure on uh, tax of inheritance that they then have to think differently uh, about how they use philanthropic means uh, to think about the future and 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 how it's what you do, it's not what you have might affect future um, generations. But Julia, I just want to bring you in on this issue around inheritance and, and wealth. Adrian did point out correctly, there is a difference between those two things. Do you think though that they are essentially uh, connected, that wealth taxes and inheritance tax have to work in tandem to try and achieve some of the powerful arguments that you've made in this podcast? Well, I, I'd just like to make sure that it, it's clear. I'm not suggesting that inheritance tax should take, you know, everyone's, you know, all of somebody's money, because absolutely it's natural for people to want to leave their children financially secure or who else is, is, is important in their life. We talked a lot about children, but also it could be your spouse, it could be your partner, it could be, you know, other people who are important to you. Um, also, when it, it, we're not talking wealth tax or inheritance tax and philanthropy aren't either or. Let's just remember that if you choose to leave a legacy to a charity in your will in the UK, I don't know the situation in the States, that's not subject to tax. So you can do that. So inheritance tax isn't stopping anybody leaving um, their estates to whatever charity they choose to do so in the UK. And it's also, uh, there's lots of sort of tax incentives, not tax incentives, but there's tax... You know, we have things like gift aid, which encourage people to give throughout their lifetime as well. Um, so they're, they're not either or. My point is that we cannot rely on philanthropy because it is voluntary. And if we could rely on philanthropy, we wouldn't be in the situation that we are in. So I think that we need all of these things. We need them um, to be interconnected. You know, I completely agree that um, the state isn't the best um, protector of land in, in the UK. You know, I, I remember when... Um, the government sold off all the playing fields uh, for schools, you know, and not so long ago they were looking to, to sell off lots of forests. So, like I said, I, you know, I, for me, I put my trust in a lot of the big conservation uh, charities in the UK uh, for protecting land. And I think, you know, it's really, really important that we do protect that, not just for nature, but for people too, because it's so important that they have access to that. But the, the, the crisis that we face in this world, in, in the world, require central really significant and really quick action to be taken. We need to, to really be massively transitioning the way that we live our lives if we do have a chance of reducing dangerous climate change. And whether what you care about is the arts or it is poverty in, de in developing countries, all of those things, you know, will will not benefit in in a world where we are facing whole areas of the world which are uninhabitable, more and more extreme weather events, uh, collapse in our food systems, uh, and all of the crises that associate with that. So, 
and, and to address those issues. You know, this is not me telling you this. It's just, you know, someone, it, it, this is science telling us this. This is all of the best um, scientists who've looked into it. We need a really, really um, global scale transition in the way that we use resources, in the way that we uh, provide our food, in the way that we, we live our lives. And that can only really be done on a central level. Though we do need that to be done by governments. You know, I want all children to have the ability to have a good education. Uh, and that requires central funding. And it needs to be funded through taxation because, of course, you know, wealthy people, they, they're not sending their children into our state system. They are sending their children to, to you know, private schools, which happen to be charities. You know, so we really do need, we do need taxation to ensure that people are contributing their fair share towards uh, making, making our world a better place for everyone you know, for, for rich and poor. And I would love to think that we can just rely on people's goodwill to do that, but history tells us that we can't. Thank you so much, Julia. Let's have a final concluding thought for um, our listeners and people who are able to uh, watch this podcast. Uh, Peter, then uh, Julia, and then Adrian. Peter, we've been, been talking particularly about inherited wealth. Just try and answer the question, uh, which really is about how important is it that we get this idea of inherited wealth right? Is it fair to argue that if we get the idea of inherited wealth and how it's passed on to future generations wrong, that will lead to a worse society? So in terms of its importance the notion of the handing on generation to generation of inherited wealth, is it the most important issue when it comes to considering how we promote a fair and just society in the future? I think that uh, how we handle inherited wealth is a major issue for the future because it does mean that we establish a, a privileged class of people who have inherited wealth and who don't need to work for it and have therefore more power than other people do. So it's an important issue, but is it the most important issue in our time? I think that really it's it's very important that we pass on values to future generations and that those values are ones that encourage people to think about the world as a whole and to think about the problems that we're creating and especially the problems we're creating for those who are less fortunate than we are. Um, so that, you know, if you say, should we solve the problem of inherited wealth or should we, let's say at this particular moment, solve the problem of climate change? Um, I would say that climate change is the bigger threat to the continuation of the world in which we're living. Um, and that is the most urgent question to solve. Whereas the question of inherited wealth, it's important. And it's, you know, as Julie's been saying, it's, it's not that it's unrelated to climate change because that yacht that Jeff Bezos has uses a vast amount of fossil fuel, I'm sure, to, to move around. Um, but uh, climate change is something that we really need to deal with now. The question of inherited wealth has been with us for a long time. It may still be with us for some generations to come. Um, I hope that eventually we will deal with it in a fair and equitable way. And of course, I'd be very happy if we started that process right now. But um, I'm not going to say it's the, the most urgent thing that we need to do. Thanks, Peter. Julia, to you, is getting inherited wealth, the rules, the guidance around it, what people should do, 
the most important issue for a just and fair society in the future? Um, I think it's an element of addressing extreme wealth. And I think that extreme wealth is interconnected to all other issues which we're facing as society, including climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis, because the consolidation of wealth in the hands of those who are able to, to spend it on things that they don't really need um, and, you know, that they are um, not only, you know, uh, consuming a vaster uh, percentage of you know the, the energy in the world, but resources in general. So I think that addressing inequality and in wealth is a, a part of the biggest um, question that we need to address, which is is a a better and fairer use of resources, which is consistent with continued um, life on Earth, which is you know which is of a kind which we have been really really privileged to experience. And, and which we are now inflicting on other people in the world who've contributed much less to these problems. They're, they're suffering uh, the problems much quicker than us, but we will suffer them too unless we address this. And I think addressing extreme wealth is, is part of that problem. It's all interconnected. Thank you, Julia. Adrian, final thought. How important is getting it right on inherited wealth for the future of a sort of fair and good society? I think we've been discussing the wrong solution to the right problem. I think the problem of vast amounts of in inherited privilege, uh, the problem of, of widening inequalities of opportunity, um, uh, the problem of opportunity hoarding on the part of the successful is a huge problems which we need to address. I don't think um, confiscatory uh, taxes on in, on inherited wealth is the right way to address them. I think it's the wrong way to address them because it's an, an invasion of liberty. I think it's the wrong way to address them because it's not necessarily very successful. If you look at Sweden, for example, which had very high um, indeed, confiscatory inheritance taxes right the way up until quite recently. It was also a society with great uh, inequalities of, of of power and indeed wealth. The Wallenberg family, through confiscate through, through complicated um, foundations and ownership structures, employed more than half of the Swedish manual working class in 1955. Um, they got round. Um, uh, inheritance taxes extremely cunningly. Um, it, so it didn't really work. I think there are solutions to the, the broader problem of inequality, as I tried to outline in my book, to do with um, um, academically focused schools, uh, to do with much more use of IQ tests towards much more um, proactive, gifted education um, classes for gifted children to, uh, to do with um, earlier opportunity in uh, kindergartens and preschools. I think all of those th things really uh, address much better the real source of inequality uh, that we have at the moment, which is accumulated cultural capital on the part of the privileged. Fantastic, Adrian. What a great place to end a really fascinating discussion. Much for people... Up a lot for people to consider about how it is that they manage their own position and if they have been successful in life and have accumulated wealth, how they consider how they pass on not just wealth but values to the next generation and how they can use that wealth to ensure a good and better society in lots and lots of different 
and complicated ways. Thanks so much, Professor Peter Singer, uh, Julia Davis and Adrian Waldridge for that fascinating discussion. Do join us again soon for another journey into the Futureverse. And in the meantime, for something of a different perspective on money and life, visit y-tree.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.